Thank you very much. This song is one of my favorites. It's called Somebody to Love. Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And this is Bill Bohr. And we're back yet again for the first episode of the new year. Yes, 2017. And what a glorious year it's shaping up to be. We <laughs> Already. B- by the way, somebody made up a, a meme with Betty White. I made it, bitches. <laughs> well, that was, had, had today's, Betty... her, today's her birthday, I think. Had Betty White died, I would have been, there. something would have been up. Yeah, well, no, she's 94 years old. I think, I don't think there would have been a huge explanation for that. I mean, God bless her. I'm not against, I hope she lives to be 104, but I'm, um, she was she is 94. Yeah, but something would have been up. <laughs> you, did you see, um, there some group, I know the one person's from Drexel University, they made a 2016 as a horror film, it's on Facebook. And they have, I mean, they just talk about things that happen. Oh, yeah, I posted that. Yeah, I mean, my just, wife posted it first. I, I posted it later. Yeah, that's great. But anyway, they have everybody had died, you know, like something on X-Files or something. And she keeps going, what is the connection? And he goes, there is no connection. <laughs> England, the Brexit thing, England just left Europe. Why? I don't know. <laughs> they fo- just did. My phone exploded <laughs> in my hand. <laughs> it's so basic. Yeah, no, it was it was a, it was a interesting year. It was a tragic year in terms of um, so many people died senseless deaths at the hands of terror, and some of them at their own foolish in the hands as well. So yeah, there was a lot of tragedy in in the world, and I'm not even thinking about the election. Well, Kid Rock is going to be performing at the inauguration, right. and Ted Nugent. So Ted Nugent, yeah, yeah, wow. That was, I mean, Ted Nugent. <laughs> I, I remember, I remember one album that they just played when I was in high school. Yeah, Cat Scratch Fever. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's about it. That was his. That was my his John Stewart. Man. There's actually a clip where John Stewart takes Mike Huckabee to task about like this song here is. You're critiquing Beyonce for her values, and Cat's—it's pretty clear what very... this is. It, 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 Huckabee's defense was not, uh, was not. That was, by the way, the biggest. If you had to ask me, the biggest blunder of 2016 politically. Well, one of the biggest. I mean, the, it's hard to. It's hard to. Huckabee list giving up that show to run for president because that show he was kind of like he had sort of a, almost like a sanctimonious slightly sanctimonious version of like the tonight show for a red state, slightly religious to, to very religious crowd. Like a lot of people could appreciate it for various reasons. And I felt like that show was such a winner for him. And he got, he got off that show to run for president and he's got nothing to show for it. So Mike Huckabee, it's just when people leave sure things like that, yeah. it's like when people leave like, well, like Howard Stern's 
you know, head writer Jackie Martin and the Joker was like, I'm leaving. I'm going to go out to Hollywood and punch up scripts. You know, I'm going <laughs> to, I mean, that stuff, like it's a bird, you know, in hand is worth at least two in the nest. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, I do think we, we do tend to keep moving up the ladder. If we have that opportunity to the point where we're, you know, no longer competent. Or we get to the point and we kind of reach a pinnacle and, and you know, we don't know how to get away from it. I mean, I've experienced that, too. So there's a sense where you, you reach kind of a pinnacle in your career and you you know it's time to move on, but you don't quite know how to do that. Like this, the phrase, a bird in hand is worth two in the nest. I get that. But I don't get the phrase, I want to have my cake and eat it, too. I've always wanted to eat my cake when I've had it. Or if I didn't want cake, I just didn't take it. Like, why do you, like, why do you want to have your cake and eat it, too? Right. Maybe maybe it's just best to leave that one alone, you know. Why do we drive on the parkway and park in the driveway? <laughs> What's the sound of one hand clapping? Stephen Wright. Yeah, that, there, uh, there's just a way that he, I, I still, the first time I ever saw him, he was just hilarious. Just the way he delivered things. All right, there you go. Yeah. Well, folks, we've talked about a lot already, and you probably didn't turn in to hear or maybe you did to hear what we thought about Ted Nugent. Yeah, oh yeah, this 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 opening reminds me of something that Hugo Grudis once said. He was uh, kind of the founder of international law. He was on the wrong side of the Arminian uh, Calvinist debate in uh, in the Netherlands, but he really was a polymath in so many ways. But he uh, his last words allegedly were, "I spent my I spent my whole life studying much." And I have nothing to show for it. <laughs> no, I've spent my whole life understanding much, and I have nothing to show for it. That could be that could be our show motto. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. I bet he didn't sound as good saying it as you just did. Probably not. No, he was dying, so it probably was a lot of choking and weakness. But uh, anyway, so there's a shout out to Hugo Grotus. I think is how you pronounce his name. You're really getting all your Dutch. I am just, I'm in, I'm in Dutch wonderland right now. You are. You're getting in all your Dutch street (laughs) cred, as they say. (laughs) So today we thought we'd talk a little bit about a passage from Thomas Halleck, who we will probably, this is not the last, it's not the first time, and it's not the last time you will probably hear us talk about Halleck. No, you know, and I, I, maybe we knew this. I knew this and maybe forgot it, but maybe I never knew it. He won the Templeton Prize in 2014. A, a $1.3 or something he got? Yeah. Tell you what, that buys a lot of communion wafers. Yeah, no, he's he's an amazing guy. Um, but he didn't take a vow of poverty, right? Because he's a diocesan priest. Uh, right, no, he's not a monk. Just take chastity and obedience. So he can take that $1.3 million and put it right in the hoisin. <laughs> Um, I, I once I once knew a priest who uh, who uh, his his favorite thing to do was go Atlantic City and and bet. He just liked going down there and gamble, and he won a bunch of money and he built a children's school. Yeah, so well, yeah. maybe Hale could buy us a green screen <laughs> so we could have really good uh, video. Some I think there's greater needs in the Czech Republic than than our uh, we need for a green screen, but. I don't know. I mean, things are relative. Well, we are we are promoting. I mean, I'm I've recommended probably four people this week to read his works. Uh, anyway, here's a quote. This is from his new book. I want you to be on the God of Love, and he's he's talking. I mean, again, just to give you a little bit of backdrop, he part of his project is thinking that in this kind of post-religious world that we live in, that 
on it, you know, an honest atheism and um, this kind of sense of the mystery of God, they actually may be two sides of the same thing. And that as people of faith, that may be how we want to approach the unbelief. It may be a way of constructively approaching unbelief in our time. And so he, uh, this is a chapter where he begins to flesh out uh, um, Kierkegaard, particularly Kierkegaard's uh, work on Abraham, and that's in Fear and Trembling, if I remember properly. And he says this, Kant, the prince of rationalists, defined the frontiers of what reason can say with certainty about God. In his words, he sought to limit reason in order to make room for faith. If I understand him rightly, Kierkegaard inspires us to limit the realm of religious certainties, and thereby make room for faith as a bold, risky spiritual adventure. I like it. Yeah, part of it, too, is this idea that, you know, if ultimately Christian faith is about us saying yes to the love of God and then trying to seek to love God and love neighbor, that love is a kind of mystery in of itself. Um, Love, he says in an earlier part of the book, really transcends the objective and the subjective. And so that there's a sense he thinks that that's why, you know, that this may be, you know, part of the pathway to really understanding and, and encountering. If we, if we can talk about love, he says, then we can talk about God. If we can't talk about God, then maybe we can't really talk about love either. I want to know what love is. <laughs> We've already done that. <laughs> We've already went down that line. Oh, no, that's how that, – that was part of our response to uh, Brother Fitch's – uh, discussion not too long ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. I was just reading some stuff in Von Balthasar. And Von Balthasar, who Halleck writes about in his first book. Yeah. It, 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 Von Balthasar basically thinks that we've got this sort of primal sense of the wonder of the I-thou-ness that we experience in the world. We even know it as infants. And yet, we're radically contingent, you know. And, and so you have this tension because the world is so amazing and you're a part of it. And there's all these amazing beings around you. And yet, you could have just as easily not been a part of it. So he, he thinks that there's these different levels of wonder. And then he thinks that, you know, there's this wonder of the whole collective of the reality, right? So mm-hmm, it yeah. should lead to like a this I-thou with the collective. But there is nothing, it, 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 that, that collective, it, at least at first glance, is elusive. And so this is a poor summary of Balthazar. But he thinks that what ultimately happens is, in pre-modernity, the first move is to mythologize. And so you, we were just talking about this before we started recording about like this. We become like the gods we worship, or we make them like who we are. Right. In, in a, you know, the kind of Forbachian move, that, like the, the theology is really just social psychology expressed writ large. So, you know, the, the, this is, you know, mythology kind of make, takes our human sense of who we are and, and makes it in the divine writ large. But there's sort of, you know, it, it kind of, it, 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 that sort of divine otherness, there's not a lot of mystery there, uh, right. nor is there a lot of critical reflection. So then you kind of swing to the other pole with the pre-Socratics, and you see this in Plato, and, and, and you see in the Church Fathers to some degree too, you know, although in a more measured degree, but you want to demythologize and sort of come up with this a, a sense of the divine reality that, that that somehow can bring in critical reflection. But then, you know, he, he points out the problem is like, at some point, Plato reboots some of the myths. Cause he, <laughs> he can't, he says that this is, this is where Nat, what he calls natural religion ultimately fails. It's like this tension between a kind of critical reflection and this mythological desire for the real, for real other. Right. 
uh, you know, so on the one hand, you've got this, the sort of Greek gods, you know, humans behaving badly with superpowers. Uh, that, like, it creates some otherness, but there, there's not enough of real transcendence. Uh, and the mythology, once you become critically reflective, sort of drops in the background. But then on the other hand, the critical reflection takes, makes everything imminent, and, and you, you lose that I-thou-ness. Right. And also winds up floating between back to the myth, then back to the, the right. mere image. Right. And so he thinks that somehow that we require something like the Trinitarian outpouring of the Christ of it to sort of bring these things together. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and I think that's what ancient Christology at its best is really very aware of that they're doing that, uh, uh, that they are, they are really straddling two worlds. Yeah. And, you know, you know, one of the things that, um, and, and again, it's just interesting, because we always, we're always creating new myths. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's stop and, you know, uh, and somehow it creeps into our dogma. You know, I, I think, for instance, and I, I almost wanted to talk about this, but I've been, you know, again, like I said, I've been spending a lot of time in the 19th century. Um, and the interesting to me is that how seductive the post-millennialism of both Orthodox people and uh, non-Orthodox people, how, how seductive that was as a force, and in many ways how it set up uh, the 20th century disillusionment because of, its, because of its optimism, even in the face of, of reasons not to be optimistic. Yeah, post-millennialism, it, it, it's got an allure to it when you're in a good mood. <laughs> right, and, and if, for those of you who may not know what we mean— in terms of, and some of people, because some of you, all that you've ever heard is a, a pre-millennial dispensationalism. Of, it's actually a, a new idea and, and mostly heretical. But, um, uh, well, no, her, her, uh, heresy, it's unbiblical. Well, let's say that at the very best. It, it's certainly not biblical. Yeah, heresy is too strong of a word. Heresy is being thrown around too too easily nowadays. Everybody's everybody's throwing heresy right. Yeah. Now. If yeah. everyone is a heretic, no one's a heretic, right? I, I, I'm doing the way. Let me let me get this out and do the math on this. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the whole thing, uh, the modern mission movement was was really born out of the idea that um, the whole world needed to be evangelized before Christ could return. And not only did they believe that it had to be done, but they believed they could do it. Matter of fact, one. Uh, one early proponent of that, Dr. Livingston, I think he, David Livingston, who was a professor at New Brunswick, uh, said by the year 2000, they would have it done. And so I don't know where he got that number, but, and he was an intelligent guy, he wasn't one of these charlatans predicting the end of the world, but they really, the evangelical impulse of the modern missions movement really had a passion that everyone should hear the gospel and they were willing to risk their lives and their lives of their family. Many of them lost their lives from disease. Many of them lost child after child. But they they did it out of a passion for the gospel. And, and I think most of the time a genuine compassion for the people they were preaching to. And the same can be said at this, you know, I mean, the idea that the world was heading towards wonderful progress and that— uh, you know, uh, we opened, we ended the 20th century. This is something both evangelicals and liberals could believe that the 20th century was going to be the Christian century, but that didn't quite work out. And we still have the magazine, though. Yeah, we still have that. Which, you know, is in full effect. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm just uh, offering a running commentary on ironic realities. <laughs> 
So in terms of, do you, how do you feel? Do you agree? I mean, I think Halleck, it's an interesting way of looking at Kierkegaard and Kant side by side. And you're more the Kant expert than I am. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting what von Balthasar thinks about natural religion because Kant, and again, Kant thought he was using reason to make room for faith. So, you know, he's, at least Kant views himself as a friend to faith. Yes. But you, you know, I think of, when I think of Kant, I think of my teacher Jeff Stout's response to um, uh, James, the great James Gustafson's, uh, one of, some of his work, the great University of Chicago ethicist. He said, the problem with Christians like Gustafson is they give atheists like me less and less in which to disbelieve. <laughs> right. And, no. so, and so I think, I mean, Kant's, this is where von Balthasar says, you know, this, that false attempts or false starts to solve this problem between the pre-modern mythical longing and the attempt to sort of, you know, to, to get a critical bomb from Gilead to, to, you know, to ease the pain of it is that it winds up like, you know, Kant, it winds up looking like a different kind of mythology that's more suited to enlightenment rationality. Well, this is what we think would make sense. So of course God would set the world up this way. And Right. In, in, in some levels, it, it's, it's, it's uh, kind of a, it, you can also see it as a patronizing view. Well, we want to keep religion around so people behave well. So, you know, in, in my read is that religion and, and faith is basically all it is is ethics. It's, it's, it's behaving well. You know, the idea of God, uh, <clears throat> which can or cannot be proven, uh, is at least helpful in getting people to behave properly. It seems like if 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 you invited Kierkegaard to your theological or ideological party, uh, if if you took him and told him, he would ultimately offend everybody at the cocktail party. Yeah, because he, you know, again, his whole work on Abraham, in part, is to say that no faith sometimes has very little to do with morality, and I think actually that wipes out an awful lot of popular Christianity, whether it be Orthodox, liberal. Or you know, Catholic or fundamentalist. You know, uh, um, a lot of us got taught in Sunday school. You know, God wants you. You know, you, as good Christians, we need to be good. And, and yeah. um, uh, they taught that more than they taught that God was good. And I think that that's problematic. If you are someone who clings to your creeds and your confessions and your five points of a particular flower, uh, he kind of blows that out of the water too. <laughs> that yeah, in some levels. The what you can say definitively, definitively about God, uh, at best, is a humble, um, a a humble staring into uh, the glass dimly. And uh, and I even think those who would say that faith is to make you feel good or faith is to bring you prosperity, uh, he wouldn't have much patience for those folks either. Did tulips really have five flowers? I don't know. Two five points. I think they do. Some do. Well, that's why. Calvinism didn't take root in Ireland. You just have three <laughs> sets of shamrock. Mostly, I mean, maybe you get a four-leaf clover. Right. Lucky, you get four points. So they it. stay. Well, yeah, they stay, stay mystical. Well, they're, they're pretty Calvinist in the north. There's some That's some it. of the most Calvinist. Of course, they're they're not really Irish people. They're uh, they're transplanted Scotsmen. I I was staying with a couple of doctors in Ireland right after the peace accord was was uh, uh, the Good Friday peace accord back in I guess was that ninety seven or ninety eight. I don't remember. And uh, the, the doctors, you know, I was talking to them, and really great people, people of faith. Um, and I, I said to them, oh, they said, well, we're not really from here. 
Oh, I go, where are you from? Well, we're from Scotland. Oh, I go, when did, when did you come here? 400 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a sense of <laughs> that's a connection. Sense. Yeah, no, no. It explained a lot of the problems in Northern Ireland. Well, I can, all right, let me, since we're kind of talking about what you can know, what you can't know, and how that functions for Christians in the world, I want to share the, the, one of the best statements of epistemology, how you know what you know in relationship to faith and reason that I've, that I've come across. All right. That I've got to go to my bookshelf to get it. All right. I am back in what really, in New Persuasive Words time, was different than in <laughs> recording time here. And I be like if we were traveling at the speed of, of, uh, of something. The speed of light, yeah. So this is from Frank Lake's tome, Clinical Theology, which is sort of an integrative, over a thousand pages on theology and psychiatry. And this is like the only sort of epistemic or like explaining how I relate my faith to my scientific discipline that I can find in here. And it's like a paragraph. I acknowledge that my philosophy is agnostic about the ultimate meaning of human life apart from Christ. I do not see him merely as an example of truths I discover elsewhere. He is my criterion of truth and the principal datum of all I know about man's freedom and deliverance and destiny. When we come to delineate the forms which human bondage takes, this is quite another matter. We all observe the same phenomena, though our point of view will partially determine what we see. The forms of personality distortion are determined. Any man who can bear the anxieties incident to the close investigation of dread in himself or in others can describe the fetters that bind us to compulsive patterns of behavior and to self-frustrating faults of character. In this area, I do not expect any major disagreement from psychiatrists familiar with any of the dynamic schools of psychiatry. Wow. <laughs> I love that. Because here's a guy that is just eminently schooled and not just in med. I mean, he, he trained originally, I think, as a virologist, as a, as a, he was a missionary in India, he was an immunologist or something, and then retrained again as a psychiatrist and mm. knew, knew tons of theology and philosophy. And yet that, that's very elegant and simple. And, and put in your own words, help people. Yeah, I think he's just like, look, I think that basically he's saying as a guy who sees wounded people, that ultimately if he, he doesn't, you know, for him, he's bet all of his chips in that Kierkegaard way on Christ. And he doesn't know like what meaning outside of Christ is, but that as far as the suffering of the human condition and the ability to diagnose it, witness it, describe it, like learn about it from others. He's not limited to Christians and, and, and that anybody mm -hmm. that's got the stomach sort of to wade into the, the broken condition of the human psyche, he welcomes as a fellow traveler, whether they share his conviction about the centrality of Christ or not. Hmm. And yeah. I think that kind of creative tension served him well. Hmm. It reminded me of what you said in the beginning about for Halek, the flip sides of the same coin. Yeah. I, you know, I think... It's interesting. I think there's a danger in the current time that we're in. Um, those of us who look at the election of Donald Trump as disaster probably are overestimating how good and positive things were were going. In other words, in terms of real change to the nation, real real addressing of of significant problems. I think Barack Obama is a good man. Um, um, but is America better eight years after he was a president? I think a lot of what we saw was the limitations, but there was a kind of positive and optimism uh, around him. Uh, I mean, in, in some levels, he uh, uh, he it was as optimistic as Ronald Reagan about this country. Uh, 
Uh, and, and the fact that an African-American become president gave us all a sense of, wow, maybe we actually have turned the corner. Uh, but there are a lot of signs that we really haven't. And, and it also, I mean, it tapped into a lot of hate. I know people who would never self-identify as racist, um, but there were people that just disliked them from the beginning. And I don't know, I mean, there seems to, I've, I've noticed over the last maybe 16 years of election cycles, and now I had uh, eight more, um, that when I've listened, been, when I've been at cocktail parties and hearing people complain about Bill Clinton or George Bush uh, Jr. or uh, Barack Obama, I seldom hear substantive uh, com- you know, critique of policy. I don't remember. So, I mean, we're talking 24 years of of a lot of uh, emotive cocktail parties. And and so I think there's a sense where, and, and, and this, I think also people who uh, voted for Donald Trump uh, and who claim to be people of faith really, really have to look at the disconnect in, in, their, in, their, in their minds. Now, I understand people's problems with Hillary Clinton. I had problems with Hillary Clinton. We both do. But I think there's a kind of disconnect from reality that whether you are looking forward to the next four years or you are looking for property in Nova Scotia, regardless of, of your perspective, it, it seems to me that we really need to reevaluate our faith because that there's something about it that just isn't strong and substantive enough. And I think people like Halleck are particularly timely because their faiths were born, his faith was born out of as oppositional a place that you could actually live. I mean, this book is dedicated. I think this is amazing. And I'm going to mispronounce his name, but Halleck's book is dedicated to Dr. Joseph Zervina, Z-V-E-R-I-N-A, 1913 to 90. He was a Czech theologian and human rights advocate imprisoned by the Nazis and the communist. Gosh, you try to survive the Nazis and the communist guy. Well, and the fact is, he was. He was. That's sent- like you see the communists, like you know, and the, yeah. uh, the camps are liberated. Everybody come out, and the communists go, "No, no, you stay here." <laughs> well, no, and the thing about it is, when he was imprisoned by the by the communist, he was sentenced to life in prison, uh, um, heavy you know labor. Uh, ten years he spent. Uh, he he didn't end up there twenty two. He ended up in over ten. But most of the time, they had him working on radioactive materials. Now, um, and he was, it says, in gratitude to his teacher of faith, love, and civic courage. Now, a person who had suffered under oppression from both fascists from the right and from communists from the left, uh, he was the author of A Theology of Agape. And so, regardless of if you are... um, if you are on top of the world about what's going on in this country, or you are in grief and disbelief, um, I think the theology of love and not sentimental love, not the kind of stuff you're getting at these mega churches to make you feel good, or all this self-made mysticism, but the crucified love of God, which is both noble and at its essence unknowable, um, but can actually get us through the dark night of the soul or the dark night of the human race. All we need is love. And real love, though. 